started today, start thinking about Father's Day. And I started thinking about a staple of dads, right? You think about dads, you think about corny jokes, you think about grilling meat. And the other thing, when I start thinking about dads, I think about dad bods, all right? You know what a dad bod is, right? I mean, there was a day and age when most of us looked like Thor, a la 2011. And then what happens, you single young men need to realize that what happens when you get married and start having kids, you look like Thor, a la 2019, right? And that just happens to be the way it works. In fact, I went out to the Urban Dictionary, and if you ever want truth, you go to the Urban Dictionary, okay? The Urban Dictionary defines a dad bod as this. It's described as being slightly round. It says, once a man has married and had kids, he's no longer worried about his sculptured physique. Uh, and it said, if, if a dad's body was a sea animal, it'd be more like a grazing manatee than a speedy dolphin, more like a mudslide than a mountain slide. More like mashed potatoes than a skinny french fry. Amen to the dad bod. I just want to say, if you're rocking the dad bod, like, welcome to the club. Like, there's no shame in that. Let's give all the dad bods a big round of applause. Now, I'll be honest. There's times when I feel the urge to fight the dad bod look, right? There are times when I'm like, man, I'm going to go do something, and I'm going to get rid of the dad, but I'm going to go back to the, the original Thor. And usually when I do that, I'm searching on social media. I'm on Facebook, and all of a sudden this ad pops up that there's some newfound secret to weight loss, that there's this new secret that I can eat whatever I want. I don't ever have to work out, but if I do this secret thing, then I will lose all of this, and I will look rock hard, all right? Uh, here's, here, here's the problem. The only shortcut to, to quick weight loss that I've ever found is bad Chinese food because you are guaranteed to lose two to four pounds in the bathroom over the next couple days. That's the way it works with bad Chinese food. <laughs> I don't think there's any magic pill. I, I, I think if you want to find that young man's bod again, I think it's the old school methods of eating right and being active and working out and those sorts of things. But you ever notice how sometimes it's the same way with our faith? We think, well, maybe there's just some sort of secret out there. And so we hear about some new ministry. We hear about some new teaching. And the idea is this new teaching will revolutionize our life. It's going to change everything. And there are these claims to supernatural power. There are these claims that this is a secret that has been missing for 2,000 years. Previous unknown information that will knock our socks off. And pretty soon we start pursuing that. And pretty soon the old, traditional, familiar patterns of Christian discipleship that have been a part of the Christian church for 2,000 years, we begin to feel that's irrelevant. That, that's old. That's not the way. That's not the key. That's not the way to do it anymore because now we have this new way. The result is that old gospel story. The story of Jesus on the cross. Uh, what we read about in the Bible, we think that's not enough. It's not enough. I need, I need this newfound secret. I need something else to add to it if I'm really going to have this revolutionary spiritual life. And the struggle is it wasn't just in our day that people believed this. This has been going on since the very beginning of uh, the church. And so today we're going to introduce a new series. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible, your Bible is divided into two halves. If you've got the Old Testament, 
that happened uh, from the beginning of time till about 400 years before Jesus was on the earth. And then you've got the New Testament that covers the birth of Jesus to about 75 years uh, A.D. And so the book of Colossians is in the second half of your Bible. Uh, you may put a bookmark there. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, over the summer looking at the book of Colossians. If you have one of our pew Bibles like me, it is on page uh, 983. And uh, here at Restoration Church, uh, one of the things I often tell you is if you're coming to hear some pastor give you all this great knowledge, I'm really not that smart. I'm really not that interesting. And so what we do is we teach the Bible. We want the Bible to be our authority. And so we come to hear the Bible. So we're going to look at the book of Colossians this summer. A little bit of background as you look at the book of Colossians. A couple things you need to know. Uh, the book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. He is identified as the author in verse 1. He says, uh, I am writing this book. He also lists Timothy as uh, kind of like a, like a scribe. Uh, you might consider Timothy to be like Siri, you know, when you hold Siri and, you, you, and it transcribes your text messages for you. That's kind of what Timothy does. Paul speaks and Timothy is Siri and transcribes everything down that Paul is saying. Uh, he's a little bit better than Siri, though, I should say that. Um, the, the book of Colossians is named um, for the church that it was written to. There was a church in the city of uh, Colossia. Uh, and it is in modern-day Turkey. You can see on the map, we've got a map up here. You can kind of see uh, that red dot in the middle of the left side of Turkey. That is where the city of uh, Colossia is. The story for this church is in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And Paul is in uh, the city called Ephesus. And he's there for two years. He's preaching the gospel. And there are two guys from the city of Colossia who... who hear the gospel message when Paul is in Ephesus. A guy by the name of um, Epaphras and Philemon. And these two guys, they hear the gospel message, they respond to it, they get excited about it, they're like, hey, we need to go back to our city. We love our city. And they go back to the city of Colossia, and they, they plant a church. And Epaphras, he's the pastor, and Philemon, he has a big house. He's like, hey, you guys can have that church in my house. And so they plant the church in Colossia, and this is what Paul is doing. Paul is writing a letter to this church uh, in Colossia. This, this book was written in 61 AD. This would have been about 30 years after Jesus had resurrected. And, and Paul is writing this, church, writing this letter, and he's in prison. He's in prison, and he hears about some issues in this Colossian church. He hears about some issues. Uh, the culture in Colossia is not unlike our culture in our day and age. There was this group in Colossia called the Gnostics. And this was a people who believed they had superior knowledge. This was a people that said, we're smarter than everybody else, and that makes us right with God. And they believed that anything that was material, so anything that is physical, anything that is created, anything basically that you can touch, that anything you can touch is evil. Your body is evil. This building is evil. Anything you can touch is evil. And so uh, they looked at Jesus and said, there's no way that Jesus, God in the flesh, could really be God in the flesh. Because Jesus had a physical body. And a physical body is evil. There's no way that God could be in an evil body. And so there's no way that Jesus was the creator. There's no way that Jesus was God in the flesh. And they said Jesus himself wasn't enough. And so for the Gnostics, what they believed is that you had to add all these other things. And so for their beliefs, they had some elements of Christianity. They had some of the things of Christianity that they liked and they made sense. 
And then they mixed in some of these uh, principles of, of self-denial, things that you might find uh, in uh, borrowed from Jewish legalism. And then they mixed in some secret passwords and secret handshakes, kind of like the kids do when they go into school. They've got all these funky little things they're doing. They mixed some of those sorts of things, take it from Eastern mysticism. And then they also had this heavy emphasis on special drinks and special foods and special festivals and special traditions. And you had to observe all of these things. And so for the Gnostics, it was a little bit of Jesus and a lot of this other stuff kind of mixed in that made sense to them. And they said, this is what faith is all about. This is a secret to spirituality. Isn't that a little bit like what we do in our day and age? Isn't that what we do? We're, 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 we, we take what we like about God. We take the things about God, we, oh, God's loving. We love that idea. But God being a God of judgment, we don't like that. So we take the stuff that we like, and then we begin to add things that we, uh, that, that we want to uh, create. We create our own definition of what God is. This is where we get things like the prosperity gospel. We like the idea of a financial blessing, a financial wealth. And so we put that onto God, and we include it with what God says. And so now we say, well, God wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy. And if you're not, you don't have enough faith. And see, it's a perversion of the gospel. And this is what was happening in the city of Colossia. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing to them about. And so he's writing to the Colossians. This is a book we're going to study this summer and I think is relevant for our day and our age. And what Paul is going to do, the, the emphasis, the reason he wrote this book, is he wants to point to the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. He wants them to understand, listen, listen, you have the key to everything you need to know about spirituality. It's in Jesus. He wants them to understand that Jesus is all sufficient. He is the Redeemer. He's the Savior. There's found, salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. He wants to make that the point. That's what we're going to study this summer. As we're going to be able to wrestle for ourselves is how do we ensure that Christ is the center of our faith? And not these other things mixed in, but how do we allow Jesus to be the, the big idea? And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to start this letter, and, and this is going to be Father's Day. Maybe this is a father lessons for you. Or maybe, maybe if you're in business, here's a leadership lesson for you, okay? Because how many of you have ever gone into a room or gone into a meeting, and you just have someone who's very blunt, and they're just criticizing you? That, I mean, you're going to get some feedback, and you walk in, and they're like, yeah, you suck. You're an idiot. Like, that doesn't feel very good. Like, you walk into that meeting, you get defensive, and you put walls up. And so there's this great leadership lesson, or let me say, it's a great fathering lesson called the sandwich method. And I couldn't find a picture of the sandwich method. I did find a picture of the cheeseburger method. So the cheeseburger method, you start with the bread, and you give positive feedback. You build them up. And then you put the meat and the cheese and the onion, and the tomato, and you can probably do with, away with the lettuce. But you put the good stuff in there, and that's your feedback. Here's what I want to communicate to you. Here's the feedback I need to give you. And then you top it off with another piece of bread, which is the positive feedback. Now, for those of you that are gluten-free, just picture the bread as lettuce, right? You can picture that with, with the lettuce on top or bottom, however it works. And so Paul is going to write this letter out. And he, he begins with this really opportunity to, to praise the church in Colossia. He wants to build them up. He wants to encourage them. He wants to highlight the fact that they are, are trusting God. In fact, here's, here's, here's what we were going to see from this passage, that there is nothing greater than, than, than having assurance of where you stand with God. Because Paul's going to write, he's going to begin, and he's just going to praise them. He's going to praise them for their standing with God, with, with, with their belief in him. 
And it's one of those things for us where we want to wrestle with and say, how do we have that kind of assurance with God? How can we have that, that assurance of where we stand with him? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these first couple of verses that Paul writes. Uh, and what I want you to do is I want you to really, I want you to assess your own heart. I want you to, to question yourself. As we look at these things that Paul says, this is an evidence of where your faith is. I want you to question yourself to see, is this where my heart is as well? So here's where he starts out. Verse 3, Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking about reputation. He's talking about the reputation. He says, we have heard of this about you. Listen, what are you known for? What is your reputation? Because Paul is saying, this is what I've heard about you. This is what your reputation is. So what is our reputation? What is your reputation? Not what you think about yourself. Not, you know, the positive way that you like to see yourself. But actually, what is it that you are known for? Listen, you may be very bold. Maybe you should, uh, this week, maybe you should ask someone around you. Maybe you should ask your neighbor, your coworker, your spouse. Hey, hey, what's my reputation? What am I known for? Am I known as being that optimist person? The one who's always smiling? Am I known for being highly critical? Am I known for being someone who is mean in the words I say? Am I known as someone who has their heads in their cloud and kind of isn't really being a part of reality? Am I known for being a consumer? Someone who is a taker but not a giver? What is your reputation? What are you known for? Ask the people around you, what am I known for? Are you known for someone who their faith and their church becomes very low importance to them? Where they have all these other things that are more important, my sleep and my football and, and, and my vacations and all those other things where my faith and church, well, you know, that's lower on the list. When it happens, it happens. What are you known for? Listen, our reputation is important. Reputation is important. So Paul, here's what he says. He says, we have heard of your reputation. We've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. I want you to underline that, the love you have for all of the saints. Because this is the first evidence that, that, that Paul praises the Colossians for their faith. He says, you have a genuine love for the saints. This is an evidence that you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you are a Christian if you have love for the saints. If you claim to be a Christian, there is an inseparable link between trusting Jesus as your Savior and loving the saints of God. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, 4.20, he says it this way. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God for whom he cannot see. So what, what, what the Apostle Paul and what John wants us to know is if we claim to be a Christian, if we claim Jesus as our Savior, then how we love our neighbor, particularly other Christians, will be the, the defining factor as to whether or not we actually have that kind of faith. That if you have faith, this is a result, a love for the people around you. And let me just clarify this. Sometimes we get really good at saying, well, well, I love the people around me because we have our own definitions of what love is, right? Well, love is, you know, every once in a while I'll send them a little text message. Hey, thinking of you, ha, 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 I'm good. No, actually, we don't get to define what love is. God defines what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is how he describes love, if I can find my notes here. 
Uh, I got so excited, I lost it. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is self-sacrificial. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is forgiving. Love always assumes the best in other people. Ouch. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love goes the extra mile. See, if we actually have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, this is the characteristic of how we're to interact with the people around us. And we're not talking about just the people that are easy to love. We're talking about not just people who are clean and safe and nice. In Paul's day, you had the slave and the free. You had the male and the female. You had the Jew and the Gentile. You had the learned and the ignorant. In our day and age... Listen, this is who we're called to love. We're called to love the Republican and the Democrat. We're called to love the white, the black, the Hispanic. We're called to love the wealthy and the homeless, the successful, and those on state assistance. We're called to love the person who annoys you. We're called to love the person who looks different from you. We're called to love the person who sometimes says the wrong thing at the wrong time and makes things awkward for everybody. That is who we are called to love. The evidence of your faith that you belong to Jesus is not great worship. It's not that you can stand in the front and raise your hand and praise Jesus. The evidence of your faith is not that you can pray these long and beautiful prayers. The evidence of your faith is not that you come to church and you serve and you do all these great things. The evidence of your faith is not how much Bible you know. The evidence that you belong to Jesus is how you love the people of God. We can't miss out on this. We have to understand this. This is why last Sunday, we do the Sunday of service. We do this once a year. Where as a church, we want to force ourselves to get into the community. To, to go and to love, the, the, to, to, to love the, the city. And you know what the goal for that event is? We do this once a year. The goal for that is not that we do it once a year. The goal... The reason we do the Sunday of service, the reason we go out to all these different organizations across the Yakima, the city of Yakima, is because we want life groups to catch a vision of what they could do. We want individuals to say, man, I loved going and serving in this location. Man, what Rod's house does is amazing. And that person would gain a heart for that and lead the church to get involved at Rod's house or Love, Inc. or Madison House or wherever it was that you were serving, that you would have a heart for that and lead the church to be involved in that. That is the, the goal behind it. That we would learn how to be a people that would show our love to our city. That we would be like the church in Colossia. That we would have a reputation as a church of being a people who love our city, of being a people who love the people around us. Let me, let me just ask you really pointedly. Let me encourage you to do something that may be a little awkward for you. I want you to, to look around this room right here. Maybe you don't have to do it physically right now. Maybe in a few minutes when I get really, things get a little slower. I want you to look around the room in here and find somebody who to you is maybe a little bit different. A little bit weird. Somebody, okay, don't, don't all look at me, okay? Find someone in the room who intimidates you. Find someone in the room who makes you nervous. Find someone in the room who you're like, I just don't know them and I have this anxiety. Because what if you went, again, if, if the love of the saints is inseparable, 
is the inseparable link to our faith. What if you went the extra step and actually went and figured out how to love that person? What if you said, man, this person, for whatever their lifestyle is or whatever it happens to be, man, I'm going to wade into their story. I'm going to get to know them and I'm going to begin to love them. Man, when we do that, when we in the church look at people that are different than us and say, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to love you. And I'm going to wade into your story. And I'm going to get to know you. You are speaking the love of God into their life. You are speaking the value of God in their life. Someone that makes you nervous and you say, you are valuable enough for me to get over that. You are speaking to say, listen, that's how God feels about you. That you are valuable. That God loves you. And what happens is when you and I, when we take that step of faith, man, we're going to see our faith grow leaps and bounds. Because we're being obedient to what he's called us to do. And we're, we're going to see, we're going to learn some new things about ourselves. I, I've learned this in my own life at Madison House. I, I go and I serve these, these families. I serve these families for seven and a half years. Oh, here I am. I'm, I'm this great guy. I'm going to go serve these low-income families. And I cannot tell you how much I learned from them and how much I grew from them. And that is the way it works. And you know what happens when the church gets this right? You know what happens when we as a people get this right and we begin to love people well? The world around us, see, we are a group of people. They're not brought together for geographical location. We're a group of people not brought together because we have common interests, because we all speak the same language, because we all root for the Seahawks, because we all have the same background. Now the world looks at us and says we are a group of people who are brought together by love. And that draws the world in. That draws people in to the love of Christ by how we love one another. And I can't say this enough. This is our call as Christians. If you claim to be a Christian, you have to ask yourself, what is the evidence of my faith? What is the evidence of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I loving the people in this room? Am I loving the people on the outside of this room? Am I loving my neighbors? Am I loving my city? Second thing that Paul is going to say to us, verse 4. Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. And here's where that comes from. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, the second thing that's an assurance of our faith, assurance of where we stand with God, is if our hope is laid up in heaven. Let me ask you this. Where's your hope? Where is your hope? This is significant because for many of us, if we're going to be honestly answer where our hope is, man, the reality is there's a lot of us that our hope is in ourselves. Our hope isn't in God. Our hope isn't laid up in heaven with Jesus. Our hope is in ourselves. Our hope is the fact that we're a good person. Our hope is the fact that, well, I've gone to church. Our hope is in the fact that, well, maybe by comparison, we compare ourselves with other people and say, well, at least I'm better than that person, Right? This is what we do. I'm, I'm a better Christian than that person. I don't use the same words that that person uses. I, I'm not a drug addict like that person. I, I, I'm a better student than that person. I, I'm a better spouse. I'm a better parent. I'm a better child. I don't do what they do. I'm not weird like them. I'm not awkward like them. And so what happens is we put our hope in ourselves. I'm a good person. The scary thing about the Bible the Bible teaches, teaches us that God doesn't just judge our wickedness. 
but he also judges our righteousness. And God's word says that our righteousness, all the good stuff that we do, all of our good works, they are like filthy rags. This is what scripture teaches us. That compared to the righteousness of God, which is our standard, that our righteousness, man, it falls so short of what God would demand of us. It's not just our wickedness that condemns us before God. It's our goodness. We can never be good enough. And so this is when we long for hope and security and peace and joy in our life. Where's your hope to find those things? If your hope is found and is tied to this world, if your hope is tied to your money, your bank account, if your hope is tied to other people's opinions about you and whether or not they like you or not, if your hope is tied to uh, uh, your looks or your job or your importance, you're going to find that to be very empty. You're going to find that to be a drug where it gives you a little bit of a high and then it drops you down so low and it leaves you hungry for more and more and more and you never get enough. You're always longing for more because it's not created to satisfy the deep longings of your heart. You know where the deep longings of your heart are found? Is as you seek fullness of life, as you seek that joy and that peace and that beauty and the rest that we all long for. Again, here I'll say it again and again and again. Where is your hope? Because if your hope is not found in heaven, if your hope is not found in Jesus, you're going to be left empty and hungry for more. It will not satisfy you. It's not until we learn to put our hope in God. It's not until we learn to put our hope in Jesus in heaven that we have the longings of a heart fulfilled. That no longer do I have to go and seek those things in the world. Now it is filled by God. So if we want to understand and have assurance of where we stand with God, the question you have to ask yourself is where is your hope? Where is your hope for peace in life? For joy? For satisfaction? Because if it's not found in heaven, you're going to find yourself disappointed. Paul continues. Uh, he says, since we have heard of the faith uh, in Jesus Christ and of your love for all of the saints, because you have laid up, uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel. He says, you're going to hear this word of truth. You're going to hear the gospel from Epaphras, who's a faithful minister, uh, who, who's faithful. And Paul is affirming his ministry in, at the church in Colossia. He says, hey, Epaphras, he's been a good pastor. He's taught you well. He says, you have heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And here's, here's where I want you to see verse 6. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day that you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth. And what Paul's trying to teach us, what Paul wants to teach the Colossians and wants to teach us, is that the explanation for our faith, our love for the saints, the hope, uh, when we put our hope in heaven, the reason we do that, is not because of the wisdom of a preacher. It's not because some preacher it gives such a great message and he's so compelling that you believed it. Uh, the reason that we have this, this, this hope fulfilled in, in God is not because we're so smart and because we can understand everything that is being taught. Uh, this is what Paul wants, and this is the, the root of this entire passage. The power of God, the peace of God is found in the gospel message. 
Not in ourselves, not in a man, not in a preacher, not in a church, not in a system. The power of God is found in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. As you're assessing your own heart, where am I at with God? Who is the hero of your story? When you look at your life story and you're telling it, we like to view ourselves as a hero. Who is your hero? Do you recognize the power of God in your life? Again, the gospel is a, uh, the gospel is a salvation story. This is what the gospel does. The gospel brings people out of darkness and into light. It is the power of God that we become a new creation, that we can be adopted into his family. It is when the grace of God moves in our soul that moves us from death and sin and separation with God into eternal life, into life eternal of peace and joy and happiness. This is the power of God. The reality of it is, man, we come to church for all sorts of reasons, right? Those of us here today, some of you came to church for a variety of reasons. Man, if you're visiting with us today, I'm so glad you're here. Like I, like, I hope you know that we, we love you. We want to be good hosts. We want to serve you in any way possible. We want to help you find the things you're looking for. You're looking for community. We want to help you find community. We want to help you find the love and acceptance of God. We want to help you find purpose and mission for your life. But the problem is, this church and this pastor and these people, we're not going to be the hero. We don't have any power in and of ourselves. Because the, uh, the, 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 the love and the acceptance and the purpose that you want is not enough. You need to experience the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we claim to be a Christian, if we say we are a Christian, that means that we have come to know and we have come to believe in our heart a very specific message. The specific message is that we are sinners and our sin separates us from God. Every one of us in this room, including myself. And God is angry at our sin, and that separates us from him. And our sin is in such a way that we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. How many of you have ever tried to fix your sin problem? You ever find it kind of difficult? Like, man, I just keep spinning my wheels. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Because, again, that power is in ourselves. But God acted in mercy and grace. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay our penalty for sin. And to give us his righteousness. That to God, no longer are we known by our sin. No longer are we known by our rebellion. Now we are known by what Jesus has done for you. And listen, there's tremendous power and us believing that and understanding that, the key to our life. This message of the gospel, Paul says, listen, it is incredible, it is powerful, it is a living organism. It's like that plant in your yard. Its roots are growing deep, they're spreading, and the plants are popping up and growing, and they're producing more and more fruit. Because the power of God, the power of the gospel message Man, it, it, is, it is like the wind. It blows throughout the entire world. It fits into every culture. It fits into every location. It's not ethnocentric. This is why we as a church, we can send a team to Mexico to go and encourage and support the, 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 the pastors and church planners in Mexico so they can go and take this message 
and see more people's lives being changed, not because they're good people, not because they fix their themselves, but because the power of God, the message of the gospel is powerful to transform. And Paul says this message has gone across the entire world and has continued to grow right here. The power of God is continuing to work right in this church in Colossia. And the power of the message of the gospel is continuing to work right here at Restoration Church in downtown Yakima. People's lives who are being transformed, that are being changed. And I don't want you to miss this. Because here's Paul, he's encouraging the Colossians. He's affirming their faith. But notice he never thanks them. He doesn't praise them. He doesn't say, hey, you guys are so awesome. I love how you love all the people around you. I love how you're believing the gospel message. That's not what he does. He says, I give thanks to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because power belongs to God. We are to be dependent on him. As we think about the joy that we want in our life and the peace and all those things, it doesn't come from us creating it ourselves. We can't. It comes from the power of God. You realize there's no such thing as an arrogant Christian? If we think we have some sort of power in our life, we become arrogant and proud of ourselves. There's no such thing as a true arrogant Christian because Ephesians 2a says, For by grace have you been saved, not of your own doing, so that no one can boast. Listen, do you find yourself struggling? You find yourself struggling in life. Find yourself struggling in faith. Find yourself struggling to believe what the Bible says. You find yourself struggling to do what you know the right thing is. The answer isn't to try harder. The answer isn't to, to, to force yourself. In fact, there's a story in Matthew chapter 9 where there's a lame man and Jesus comes up to the paralyzed man and says, do you want to be healed? Do you believe I can heal you? Lame man responds, I believe. But would you help me in my unbelief? Listen, that is a heart I want us to have as a people of God. That when we are struggling to believe the things of God, when we're struggling to obey and to live the way that we're supposed to, that we'd realize it's not us trying harder. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to believe blindly. The answer is to humble ourselves and press into the Lord and pray and say, God, God, would you help me here? God, would you open my eyes to the truth? God, would you open my heart to the truth? God, I've got this area that I'm having a hard time surrendering to you. God, would you help me to surrender it to you? God, would you meet me where I'm at? Just like that man, Lord, I believe. Would you help me in my unbelief? Restoration Church, there's nothing greater than having assurance of where you stand with God. I love the fact that Paul strips this down for us. And says, if you're going to assess your heart, you're going to question your faith. Three things. Number one, what is a proof of your faith? Is it the fact that you've come to church? Is it the fact that you go on a mission trip? Is it the fact that you have the bumper sticker on the back of your car and you share the verses on Facebook? Or is there proof of your faith in how you love the people around you? Number two, where's your hope? 
Is your hope in your finances? Is your hope in your intellect, in your humor, in your people skills? Is your hope in the fact that you're a better person than most? Or is your hope found in the Savior who's in heaven right now? Number three. I gotta look, I forgot what it was. Who's the hero of your story? Where does the power come from? Does it come from you? And your ability to do great things? Or is the hero of the story God? Do you understand the power that he gives us through the gospel message that when we humble ourselves, recognize who we are, we are sinners saved by grace. That the power and the glory and the honor and the praise belongs to him, not to us. That is the message I want you to know. I want every one of us to be able to stand up and to be able to say, I have assurance of my faith. I have a relationship with God, and here's the proof. Would you pray with me?